This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. And right now, more than 6 million people are living with it in the United States, a number that is expected to double over the next two decades. Earlier this year, the FDA approved a new drug that is offering hope in the fight against this devastating disease. The drug, called Lakembi, appears to slow cognitive decline in the early stages of Alzheimer's, though not without some potential risks. Patients are also finding it hard to get coverage for the treatment. And this all comes amid a recent report from the Alzheimer's Association warning that the national cost of caring for patients with Alzheimer's will rise dramatically over the coming years. The report also reveals that too often individuals with memory concerns do not tell their doctors, missing a critical first step towards diagnosis and potential treatment. Joining me now to discuss both the promising new treatment as well as the findings of the latest report on Alzheimer's is Dr. Nicole Purcell. She's a neurologist and senior director of clinical practice for the Alzheimer's Association. Dr. Purcell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's, let's for some context for this conversation, um, let me go back to what I just mentioned here in the introduction, and that is the numbers of people that we are finding who are suffering from Alzheimer's. Uh, your reaction to that, are you surprised at the number we're talking about and then talk about what the projected numbers are in the near future? So currently there's more than 6.7 million individuals living with Alzheimer's disease over the age of 65 in the United States alone. And there are more than 11 million caregivers providing care to those affected individuals. It's a staggering number. And when you look at the cost of that care, it's approximately $345 billion this year alone. Were you surprised, again, you live in this world and uh, you know, I've been involved in this with the Alzheimer's Association for a number of years, and yet I was jarred by the numbers. Are you, who are living in this world, who are dealing with this and trying to find cures and treatments, uh, is that number surprising to you? It is surprising. And when you look at the projections that the number will increase to a, uh, close to 13 million people by the year 2050, it's even more staggering. It's tremendous amount of people in the United States and worldwide that have the disease. Let's talk about one of the headlines here in, in the introduction, and that is the, the approval for a new drug. We called it, I described it, Lakembi, I believe is the name that's being used for it. That's correct. Talk a little bit about what it is designed to do and what the findings have been in terms of its efficacy. So the new medications that are approved by the FDA for treatment of Alzheimer's disease are designed to reduce the amyloid plaques that accumulate in the brain and cause pathology for this disease. So there's currently two of them. Lakembi was the most recent one as of January of 2023. 
And it's important to note that these medications are approved for the indication of early Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment. So that means it's very important that if you or a loved one are experiencing symptoms of memory loss or cognitive difficulties, to talk to your primary care physician as soon as you notice those symptoms. And in, in terms of what this is, because I know that when you hear something being developed for Alzheimer's, uh, most people's initial instinct is, is this a cure? Have, have we found a cure here? What's the answer to that in terms of this drug? And what's the answer in terms of how close are we at all to a cure? So these new medications are not a cure, but they have been shown to slow the progression of cognitive decline. Um, we do know that um, there are other proteins that are involved um, with being deposited in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. So it may be that it may take a combination of medications. So there are new medications that are in the pipeline on the horizon undergoing clinical trials at this time. And it may be a matter of needing a combination of medications to attack this complex disease in multiple ways. I'm going to come back in, in, in a, a moment uh, to this drug and, and how accessible it is to patients. But let me come back to something that you mentioned just a moment ago that I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. And that is the reluctance that, that patients have to talk about the onset or at, at least questions that they might have about their cognitive ability with their medical providers. Clearly there's no uniform answer to the question why, but generally speaking, what are you finding in terms of why patients are so reluctant to talk about it? Well, that was the other striking finding in our report of facts and figures this year is that individuals that are experiencing difficulty with their memory and cognition, they are not talking to their primary care physicians. They feel more comfortable talking to their family or friends about their, their issues. They feel that maybe they can compare their symptoms to what their friends are experiencing to see if they're normal or abnormal. And, and uh, individuals also expressed concern that if they do talk to their primary care physician, they may get a diagnosis of dementia, and that's not something they necessarily want, or they may have um, a misdiagnosis. They may be get, you know, they may be told that they have something else that they don't have. So they did report several things as reasons for why they aren't approaching their primary care physicians. So how do you get, and, and we lived through, through this, my mother-in-law suffered from Alzheimer's before she passed away and my wife, and, and she had always been very close and she, they, she, she saw it and yet my mother-in-law wouldn't admit to it. How do, what's the advice that you can give, and this is to family members at this point, if they see something happening, how do they communicate with their loved one to try to say to them, all right, we, we need to get to a medical provider and we need to accept that this is happening. You bring up a very good point that many people that are experiencing difficulty with their memory, they don't have insight into it, so they don't realize it. So we encourage uh, you know, loved ones or care partners um, to discuss it with the, the individual that they're seeing the problem and encourage them and actually attend the physician's visit with them. And it's very helpful on the physician's end to not only have the individual with symptoms, but their loved one that's seeing changes or things going on with the person. It gives us much better insight into what's actually going on. I think the other thing that is important besides care partners or loved ones encouraging the individual 
Primary care providers also reported that they generally wait for the patient or a loved one to bring up their symptoms of memory concerns instead of making it a routine part of clinical care. But I think we need to reduce the stigma and make this a part of every clinical visit. You mentioned stigma, and, and that is such a hurdle for so many different medical maladies and ailments. This, I think, carries with it, it, it's, it carries with it fear along with the stigma. I think you start thinking, I, I can't remember where I left my keys today, and that your next thought is, oh dear, I, am I getting uh, Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia? So what, what do you say to, again, either patients or family members uh, and primary care physicians so that they can be invested into? What, what do you say to them about how do we deal with the fear of a diagnosis that then causes this reluctance? Well, it's been my experience with seeing patients that if I can ensure them that they're not going to go through this process uh, alone so that they do have a loved one there that's with them or they do have family and they have their physicians that are going to guide them through this and uh, hopefully enabling them to, to develop a trust so that as they progress through the disease, that they're trusting that their physicians and their care partners are going to act in their best interest always. And I think it's very um, important for primary care physicians to just bring up memory concerns at every visit. So it just seems to be a normal part of routine care and the discussion, and it'll help patients feel more at ease when trying to have these conversations with them. Let me come back to the Lakemi, the drug that we talked about before, mm -hmm. and, and you discussed you know, what it's designed to do, what hopefully it can do, underscoring not a cure here, but a treatment early stages, as you said. Uh, is it readily available at this juncture to patients? So it is not readily available as far as coverage goes for um, payers. So most of the um, patients over the age of 65 are Medicare beneficiaries, and Medicare is currently not covering the drug outside of experimental uh, clinical trials. Um, recently, the Veterans Health Administration did release a report indicating that they are going to cover it for their, their beneficiaries that um, are uh, qualifying for the medication. I suspect people are gonna have the same reaction that I'm having right now. I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, I'm on I'm Medicare, I'm that age. Uh, and so I'm especially concerned about the availability of drugs that might uh, be more necessary for me as an older person. Uh, and I, I suspect that viewers are watching and listening to this and they're puzzled. Saying, well, wait a minute, if the FDA has approved this, why is Medicare, who is supposed to be taking care of us in uh, our, our older ages where this is more prevalent, why are they not jumping in with both feet and, and applauding this and saying, absolutely, let's get it to everybody we possibly can? Is there an answer to that? Well, part of the, the answer um, lies with the FDA approval. So the medications were approved under an accelerated approval approach. And so Medicare um, has not agreed to cover this unless the medication receives full approval. And it's my understanding that that information is sitting with uh, the FDA currently, and at some point uh, they will review it in the near future. Are there, are there other drugs or treatments that are in the pipeline right now that, that you and the Alzheimer's Association are familiar with that at least have some potential um, for, for providing additional care? There's approximately 140 um, 
medications that are in the pipeline. And these medications are um, effective at a wide variety of strategies. Some of them are um, against amyloid. Some of them are against tau, which is another protein that accumulates in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. Some of them are anti-inflammatory medications. So there's different strategies of medications coming through the pipeline. So it's very hopeful. And I've got about a, got a minute or so left here. So for folks that are that are watching this, watching our conversation, and are saying, you know what, this sounds familiar. Some of these symptoms sound familiar either for me or for a loved one or a friend. Where do they go to find information and guidance? So the first place they should go is their primary care physician and discuss their symptoms with their primary care physician to get an assessment and to get a diagnosis. And if there's additional information, um, certainly uh, come to the Alzheimer's uh, website, which is alz.org, and you can find information there. We also have a helpline, and that helpline number is on our website. All right. Well, Dr. Nicole Purcell, thank you so much for, for sharing this information, helpful information for us, giving us a better understanding. And, and, and thank you to you and all the folks at the Alzheimer's Association for the wonderful work that you're doing. We'll check back with you soon to see what kind of progress we're making. Thank you again. You be well. Thank you. April is Autism Awareness Month. This on the heels of a recent CDC report indicating that according to their data, as many as one in 44 children exhibit signs of the disorder. Autism Speaks is a preeminent organization providing information and solutions and indeed awareness concerning autism. And that organization is marking this month, among other things, with a series of initiatives designed to provide ideas and training skills for caregivers. For more on all of this, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Andy Shi, who is the Chief Science Officer for Autism Speaks. Dr. Shi, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jack. Pleasure to be here. So we're talking about awareness, right? I want to get to the initiatives in just a few minutes, but let's focus on awareness. And let me ask you to start off providing us with a, a essentially a definition of autism and what it means. Sure. So, so autism or autism spectrum disorder refers to a broad range of conditions um, that shares uh, common challenges in uh, social interaction, uh, re uh, repetitive behavior, uh, as well as verbal and nonverbal communication. And um, you know, individual with autism can uh, they have a, a spectrum of abilities. Um, some are they think and learn and. Uh, and the problem solve uh, uh, differently, uh, just like other people. And they can range from being extremely skilled to those that are severely challenged. You, you characterize it as a disorder. Explain why this is not a disease. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, 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 it's really autism, I think the way we're seeing right now is part of the uh, diversity of human beings. And uh, uh, the fact that they think differently, that they uh, look at problems differently, I think is, is something that we should celebrate, we should recognize. And, uh, and like everyone else, you know, we need uh, to, to have accommodation in order to function and in order to be included in, uh, in families, community life. So that's why it's important to recognize uh, individual strength. Autistic strength is, uh, is something that is, uh, is often celebrated in our community. And, uh, and, and by no means, you know, I think the limitation that often social often speak 
um, with with autism, it's really due to uh, um, you know the environment and not having in a, uh, have to navigate a system that's really not built for them. I've been privileged to be involved in with Autism Speaks for some years now, and I'm always struck, and I think this is so important when you're talking about awareness, uh, by an expression that's used, which is, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I believe I love that quote. I believe that's attributed to one of our uh, member of our board director, Dr. Stephen Shore. Um, yeah, I think it really highlights uh, the uh, the variety, diversity of uh, of strength and abilities within our community. And uh, you know, I think the important thing is that uh, each individual experiences autism differently, right? And uh, I think what is important is is like is like everybody else, uh, we should recognize really the, the richness of human experiences, of human ability that's on display within our community. And uh, uh, and not to assume, right, that's because they have autism, that they all, you know, are expected to act or behave or or, uh, or do certain things the same way as everybody else. So. And, and again, one of the things that I, I think are important misperceptions is that because somebody falls on the spectrum, the disorder, it doesn't mean, and, and please explain what it does mean, doesn't mean that it's a debilitating situation or disorder? No, not, not at all. I mean, no, not at all. I mean, I think while it's true that, that some individuals are more severely affected and may require, you know, uh, significant care, uh, even daily routines, others, many other require much less so support, right, in order to successfully navigate daily life. And even still, there are some I know who are able to live, uh, you know, entirely independently, very happy, healthy, uh, you know, productive life, you know, so so really is a range of abilities within our community. I mentioned in the introduction, the recent CDC report, uh, I believe it's titled CDC Autism Prevalence Report. Give us a, a quick synopsis of, of what that had to say and how it's changed in terms of, of views of the disorder most recently. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, I think one thing that's been really gratifying to see over the past 20 years in the community is really how increasing awareness, right, has has driven, uh, you know, the, the creation of solutions, uh, uh, accommodation that are needed for our members of our community to thrive. Uh, you know, current number is one in 44, a significant number of our children are affected these days. Um, and uh, and I think that certainly is a significant progress that's been made, but it also points to a need for more research. You know, for example, what we're seeing in the African-American community is that you're more likely to be diagnosed with autism if you also have intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. That means that, what that means is that more severely affected kids in the African-American community are more likely to be diagnosed. So what does that mean for, for kids who are less severely affected, right? Are they being missed? So these are questions that need to be answered uh, in order for us to best serve all members of our community. When you talk about questions that need to be answered, we know as a society, and it's human nature, we're always looking for the answer to the question, why? About anything in our lives. Do we yet, or are we yet any closer to answering the question why when we talk about autism? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. You know, I think as you alluded to earlier, you know, it's such uh, richness and diversity within our community in terms of abilities. And I think most of, you know, what's important to recognize is not one 
autism is many subtypes of autism isn't what we recognize now and that uh, uh, and that and that this diversity really speaks to you know the need to really uh, be comprehensive in the accommodation support we provide <clears throat> to individual we know that most of these uh, uh, spectrum activity uh, abilities really due to interaction of genetics environmental factors but the fact that environment plays an important role in this in this whole equation I think speaks to hope that if we are able to provide accommodation in the learning environment, in the healthcare environment, in the support environment uh, for these individuals, they can live as productive and fulfilling life as anyone else in our community. And I think that's good to underscore the notion of hope when you're talking about this and underscore the ability to live meaningful and impactful lives. Absolutely. So I, I mentioned in the introduction um, as part of this um, awareness month that Autism Speaks is, is rolling out some initiatives designed to provide tools for caregivers. Uh, give us a, a little bit of a, a sense of why that's so important. And then let's talk about some of those initiatives. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a very important initiative for us. Uh, I think, I think you know, um, it should be reminded uh, that um, you know majority of our families affected by autism around the world live in low and middle income country. More than 95% of the global population live outside of high income country like the US, Canada, and Western Europe. And their experiences with autism are typically a lack of access to timely intervention, lack of support, stigma, and other challenges. And because of that, they experience great health disparity as they, as they develop, as they um, age, they become teens and adults. And, and most of the reason for this disparity in, in healthcare is due to lack of capacity to provide timely support. And so the, the intervention that many of us uh, in the US enjoy um, are, uh, for example, the ABA programs or the behavioral uh, uh, treatment program are really an aspiration in many of these communities. They just don't exist. There's no people, no specialists are able to provide the support. So this is a problem that WHO and Often Speak set out to solve, right? We wanna create a program that really leverage the expertise of the caregivers. Each of them are experts on their children, their likes and dislikes, what works for them, what don't work for them. How do we turn that understanding and knowledge into the best care possible, right? So we train the caregivers the, the parent, the non-specialist, um, in key strategy and messages that can promote social communication, positive behavior, greater inclusion in family, family life, uh, home routines and play, as well as, by extension, community life. Uh, we think this is a hugely important initiative because we really provide evidence-based strategy in a feasible and sustainable way in community, even when there are no specialists, even when there are no pediatrician uh, for miles around. So, so it's, a, it's a really a, a hope for many of our families now. When you say provided in a, in a feasible and sustainable way, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so this is, I think this is a, a major challenge in the, in the autism research community right now. Like most medicines, it's, it's not that we don't know what to do to help identify children early and to provide the support that they needed uh, so they can thrive. The problem is, is doing what we know, is to deliver these intervention and support to the families where they are, right? The, 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 you know, we have similar challenges you know, that they're experiencing in these low and middle country uh, here in the United States, in health, uh, high income country, 
in underserved communities, uh, rural communities, for example, ethnic minority community, they share the same challenges of access, quality of care, and so on. So, so I think the, the, the issue here is really how do we you know, deliver the highest quality of care uh, in a way that is uh, feasible uh, with, uh, when, you, when you think about the reality of your life. The reality of life is not that they can drive for 15 minutes to reach a clinic or they can easily register and have everything taken care of and a, a therapist will come and take your children for two, three hours and get the child back to you. Um, you know, the reality is that they probably have to work multiple jobs. Probably they have to find ways to try to find, to get to the clinic and they probably may have to find health, you know, uh, child care for the other children, for example. And, and we try to figure out what is the best intervention for their for their kids. You know that's the reality. So how do we accommodate these challenges, and making sure that even these families that really f- face the most daunting of challenges are able to access the care that they need in a timely way? Got about forty five seconds here to wrap this up. So I think the good question to ask is this: anybody who's watching our conversation here might say, "All right, I, I need this," or "I know someone in my family or friend who needs this." Where do they go? to look to find some of this assistance you're talking about. Yes, please come to authenspeaks.org, our website. We have a whole uh, suite of information about this program. They're also linked to the WHO, World Health Organization webpage about this program. I'm also happy to share that on April 28th, there'll be official global launch of this event. It's an online event that you can find the information on, at Authen Speaks. And uh, the public's welcome. We expect a global audience uh, for this launch of this important program for our families. Well, it's wonderful information. Again, Autism Speaks has been doing such a marvelous job for so long, providing solutions. And as you mentioned, hope, which is perhaps the most important element to provide here. Dr. Andy Shi, uh, Chief Science Officer from Autism Speaks. Dr. Shi, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. You take care now. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.